0: Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined by Randall Worley. Randall, as always, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. So today we are doing our third Christmas podcast for 2021. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the true story of St. Nicholas. And so, you know, as we begin here talking about Santa, uh, his story uh, starts off in Turkey, Yes, Turkey, uh, what was then called Asia Minor, uh, where he was born around 280 A.D. in Patara, Lycia. Uh, Tradition teaches us that his parents died when he was young and left him a sizable inheritance, and he used that inheritance to help the poor and the sick. Um, As an adult, he became the bishop of the church in Myra. Um, This is in the area of modern-day Turkey, and uh, we don't really know a whole lot about his life from that time period, except for a few stories. Um, one of the stories involves a man who had three daughters and um, they were uh, you know, not having enough money and they weren't married and he was considering putting them into prostitution. And so uh, Nicholas went by at night and put coins through the windows of the house to essentially help this guy pay his taxes and keep from having to uh, do that with his daughters. And um, we also have a second story where uh, there's an innkeeper who had apparently murdered three boys. And uh, so if this is a great, really happy Christmas story, right? <laughs> uh, he had murdered these boys and apparently dismembered them and stuffed them in the barrels. And when the bishop entered the place, uh, Bishop being St. Nicholas, right? He uh, sensed the crime and somehow resurrected the boys. Now, uh, as a result of these two stories, he became known as the patron saint of children and of gift giving, and because he cared about these boys, he cared about these daughters, and he uh, was known for helping people pay their taxes and and that kind of stuff. So, essentially, those are the main things you know about Saint Nicholas, but there's one other thing that I find very interesting about the the man, the myth, and the legend, and that is that... uh, In um, the early years of the church, they would call together councils, and the councils would help determine, you know, what should the church teach universally about these different, you know, questions about the faith that would come up. And uh, he was likely uh, imprisoned in AD 303 um, uh, by the Roman government for being a bishop, for teaching and preaching and presenting the gospel, Uh, but was somehow released when Constantine came into power around 313 AD, and then in 325 at the first church council, which was held in Turkey, um, he was one of the attendees. He was actually listed as the 151st of the 300 total pastors that were at this council, and uh, in this particular church council, uh, there was a man named Arius, and Arius was uh, teaching that Jesus was created, that he was not eternal. And I don't mean Jesus was created like born in a manger. I mean like the second person of the Trinity, the Son, uh, the Christ, was created from nothing and didn't exist eternally with God the Father. And the church said this is a problem. And the story goes that it was St. Nicholas who at, uh, at this debate at the council, things got so heated that he actually punched Arius in the face. And so, you know, we have this, uh, this guy who we now from tradition, you know, say goes around and brings gifts to children and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but seemingly uh, from the stories we have was perhaps a little different than the man we think of. Um, he was also not located in the North pole. Uh, Turkey looks a lot more like Texas, you know, West Texas, than it does uh, uh, a place covered in snow. So uh, it's just a, you know, very interesting um. Uh, you know, way that we sort of go from that to what we have today. But uh, Randall, what are some of your thoughts on the uh, just the, the St. Nicholas story?
1: Well, I think it's a fascinating story. Uh, I, I think he, he stands out as uh, a Christian leader of the past, uh, I guess, on par with a whole lot of figures that we have in church history, you know, people who uh, do very significant things and uh, also demonstrates some very human passions. I, I love the story about him punching Arius. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> that seems like some some uh, some passion uh, when it comes to theology. Uh, but we have a, a number of even even not so distant past uh, in our own uh, history here, locally in Texas, figures that are very colorful that way. You know, um, <laughs> it's interesting the mixture of kind of very, uh, kind of mundane things, you know, uh, the realities of him uh, being a bishop and leading the church and being uh, imprisoned and, and then released and participating in the Council of Nicaea and all that. Um, those are all very uh, kind of normal historical type things. Then you have these kind of uh, mythical Uh, stories you know the the resurrecting the mismembered boys um, and and then somewhere in between you know something very I I think very uh, believable you know the idea of him giving these dowries uh, to anonymously to to help out this family. Um, I, I do think That shows us that we have here kind of two layers. We have kind of the historical layer of what's going on with this uh, Christian leader, uh, and then the tendency and the whole idea of venerating the saints uh, that developed in, in the church in kind of the medieval period, you know, where you start creating these legends about these figures and you start attributing them uh, all these supernatural events so that you have the necessary qualifications to call them officially saints uh in the oh, yeah. in the nomenclature of the of the church at large of course paul used saint to describe any christian he, he didn't uh, he didn't distinguish one from another uh, but you have this sense of you need le- legitimizing supernatural events uh, before you can add somebody to the Canon of saints. Um, so I, I think we we kind of see both evidences. And I think looking at it, I've looked a little bit into this, that story of the you know resurrecting the dismembered uh, children is not the only uh, there there are a whole bunch of that kind of stories attached mm-hmm. to to Nicholas. Uh, what's a bit of a mystery to me, and I'm uh, I'm not primarily a historian, so I'm, that's not my strongest area, but um, what's really interesting to me is where did we get from the veneration of a saint to what's going on today? Uh, yeah. You know, the jolly, uh, oddly dressed, uh, North Pole inhabited, uh, you know, guy that we all know. Um,
0: <laughs> do, you, do you know more about that that side of the story? So I know a little bit more about that side of the story. Um, so tradition says that Nicholas himself died on December 6th, 343. And as a result of that day, uh, many people would give gifts on December 6th in honor of St. Nicholas. <laughs> and so uh, earliest traditions of him, even after the Reformation, uh, have have this idea where uh, Nicholas is giving gifts out, but it's on December 6th, not on December 25th. And um, there was a, ju- a Dutch celebration for this called, um, well, it's just a, it was a feast day, uh, uh, but it was on December 6th. And uh, I want to point out something else here. And that is that between AD 1200 and 1500, uh, Nicholas became really known as the person who brings gifts. And so it was sometime during that, Uh, that era where this happened, but then in different places uh, around the world, you sort of got these different traditions that started to spring up, and so there's some that I think are pretty interesting, uh, just because they're also (laughs) a little bit just off off the wall, you know, Um, so uh, in in some traditions, uh, you have baby Jesus actually being the one to bring gifts, and Nicholas being his helper, uh, kind of like uh-huh. Jesus's sidekick. And um, one of these sidekicks is called Rue Claus or Rough Nicholas. Another one is called Ashen Claus, which means ashy Nicholas, which I think has to do with the idea of going through chimneys and you know those uh-huh. kinds of things. Uh, and then you have Pelsnickel, which means furry Nicholas. And uh, these characters expected children to behave or be whipped or kidnapped for their bad behavior. So not only was it that <laughs> they would bring gifts, but it's like, you know, I mean, we, today we talk about, you know, Santa bringing coal to the bad kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, back then it was, Hey, you know what, you're going to get whipped. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, the name of the baby Jesus that was giving gifts was Kristenkin or Chris Kringle. And so the idea of, uh, St. Nicholas now being named Chris Kringle actually comes from this idea of this baby Jesus bringing people gifts Uh, that developed shortly after the Reformation. Wow, uh, that's interesting. In the um, 1700s, um, the uh, Dutch migrated to America, and they brought some of their traditions with them, and one of the traditions they had was to set out their shoes the night before so that Sinterklaas or Santa Claus uh, would um, put something in their shoes for the next morning. In... um, New England, uh, the feast on December 6th was shunned by many as a wild outdoor party filled with alcohol, and so as a result, um, many people didn't like to be associated with the December 6th thing, and over the next, you know, 100 years, it sort of transitioned the move to December 25th because people liked the idea of the gift giving. Uh, in America but they didn't really like the especially Christians in some of the New England providences didn't like being associated with the December 6th uh, partying that went on uh, which seems to make you know sense I mean if you think about you know Christians not wanting to be um, tied to uh, reputations of big sinful practices and apparently right these parties were pretty out of control uh, mm-hmm. for you know the 1700s right so um, um, in 1809, there was a a poet named Washington Irving, and he portrays Santa Claus as a pipe-smoking man who soars over the rooftops in a flying wagon, Uh, and in this wagon, he would give gifts to girls and boys. In 1821, uh, there was a poem called The Children's Friend, and this associated Santa Claus with Christmas, and this is considered the first appearance of Santa. As he's known today. And in this particular poem, his wagon is pulled by one reindeer. Um, then in 1822, Clement Clark Moore wrote A Vision from St. Nicholas. Today it's been retitled The Night Before Christmas. And this is the poem that calls Santa Claus plump and jolly. It retains the pipe smoking, at least in its earlier printings. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, some some printings today leave that out. <laughs> yeah. And um, it adds to the number of reindeer, making it eight, and gives them all names. Um, Rudolph, however, did not make his first appearance until 1939, and he was created as an ad for Montgomery Ward's department store. Uh, <laughs> so, all that being said, that's where we sort of get... Um, get the modern Santa Claus. It was in 1879, so I know I'm backing up a little bit from our 1939 comment about Rudolph, but in 1879, uh, Thomas Nast was an an artist who uh, published pictures of Saint Nicholas that had him for the first time living in the North Pole. Previously, traditions had him living in Turkey, Spain, Holland, and even in Finland, Uh, and in Finland today, many children still believe he lives in Lapland, which is the northern part of their country. Uh (laughs) So all that being said, there's a lot that goes on uh, with these traditions as they change over time. You know, one of the myths that I've heard uh, many times is that, you know, Santa Claus got his red coloring from Coke and that before Coca-Cola made him red, he was green. But if you actually look at historical drawings, uh, he comes in all sorts of colors. Uh, mm-hmm. So there were reds that predated Coke, but I think it was very convenient for Coke at the time.
1: Yeah.
0: The color of their can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine well, and, what it would look like if Pepsi would have been <laughs> the, the one to... Uh, uh, <laughs> <make some things.
1: laughs> Blue
0: Santa, yeah. Or Dr. Pepper, you know, we
1: can have a maroon Santa. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I think it's helpful to kind of review some of this and realize uh kind of the story that goes behind all of this and and there are i think legitimate christian points of connection um i think the bigger question though is how should we interact with this tradition as it now stands uh as christians i i kind of that's that's kind of what i give a lot of thought to and as a pastor um I've uh, I've often tried to give veiled instructions uh, to parents. Uh, one of my biggest concerns, there there are a couple. I, if I can't help but think about this theologically, um, and you know, the current practice is Santa is up in the North Pole, and he's a semi divine being with. Uh,
0: kind of a limited omniscience Uh, he
1: he has at least uh access to know whether you've been good or bad and uh does so for all the people of the world and uh is able in one night to address just uh affirmation or retribution the world over uh i mean we don't think of it in those terms, but that's really what it boils down to. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. good, he rewards you. If you're bad, he, he gives you something bad. Um, and I find that whole structure completely at odds with the gospel. Uh, I know for parents, it can be convenient leading up to Christmas to tell children, well, if you're not good, you might not get presents, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wonder just thinking deeper about what it is we're raising our children up in terms of instruction and and Mm -hmm. what we're teaching them about how the world functions. And this very much merit-based approach to receiving favor from a semi-divine being, uh, I think is completely at odds with the gospel, which has God reaching out to us in love, despite our sinfulness, and as a gift, extending grace to us. And uh, the requirement from us being faith, uh, not merit um, to, and, and for me, it's particularly troublesome that at Christmas we're trying to remember the significance of the coming of Christ. I mean, that is the gift of all gifts. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's no superior thing that God has given to us than himself. Um, and to, to me, it, it, it kind of twists the story backwards to teach our children this kind of merit-based approach to receiving, let's call it divine favor, because Santa is at least viewed as uh, kind of a helper of God. You know, uh, yeah. he's viewed as being on the side of the good, good forces, whatever they may be. Uh, he's certainly been secularized. He's not considered uh, in our world today to have much at all to do with Christ. Uh, I don't
0: know what Uh, what are your thoughts in many I think modern day retellings of the story of Santa Claus I mean not not necessarily historical retellings but just what does he do um it's almost like and here's this tireless job and um you know you just got to work and work and work and work to have this one night where you eventually you know go do this and then next morning it's right back to the grind yeah. Um, so, so yeah. it is kind of interesting and it, it has certainly been very secularized. Um, you know, we tell our, our kids that, um, because we, we do practice Santa in our house and, and we have fun with it. Um, we tell them, you know, the reason that Santa brings gifts is to remind us that Christ is the, um, uh, one who came as a gift for all people. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, with that, um, but at the same time, I think many Christians uh, have a tendency to focus so much on the Santa aspect that they neglect the um, ties to the faith with it. And I think that can be problematic. Um, it, uh, it also, you know, makes me think of other traditions we have. So I was doing some, some research the other day just on the history of Christmas trees. And um, it's believed, I think by, by many at least, it's believed that, that Christmas trees sort of Um, morphed out of something called a paradise tree, and the paradise trees were decorated in people's homes, and they started doing this, um, you know, uh, somewhere around the the 1200s or so in um, northern Europe, and these paradise trees would be decorated with apples and paper and, you know, stuff like that, Uh, but they were called paradise trees to remind people of Eden And people would actually then take these trees and uh, cut them into the shapes of boxes. And they would do like little plays with puppets in them to tell Bible stories and things of that nature. And um, it's believed that the first time, well, so these paradise trees uh, then became sort of moved in this idea of Christmas trees around the 1400s. But they were only typically Christmas trees in public squares. And so you didn't have everybody having a tree in their home. It was just kind of like, and here's a tree we're going to decorate with food and with uh, paper and stuff like that. Um, And then it's believed that Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, sort of accidental founder, I guess, of the Reformation, um, uh, was walking home one night and looked up through the uh, fern tree and saw some stars, and it reminded him of... Um, you know, Christ leaving his throne in heaven and coming to the earth in the form of an infant child. And um, in doing this, uh, you know, he said, you know what, I think I'm going to put a tree in my house to, and I'm going to put candles in it to remind me of this walking event where I'm looking through this tree and seeing these stars. And the candles in the tree will remind me of, um, you, know, so, you know, the fact that Christ came. Um Early on in Christmas traditions, people used candles on trees. I think that led to some homes being burned down, and so probably wasn't <laughs> yeah. the. I, so I think that kind of fell out of favor. And then there were no lights on trees until um, much later. You know, after invention right. of electricity and all that. Uh, but um, one of the things I find interesting about Christmas trees is they originally had um, baby Jesus on the top of the tree. Uh, And then that later got replaced by the star to remind us of the star that the wise men followed to look for Christ. Uh, So I was thinking this morning about Christmas trees and, you know, we decorate a tree at our house. I'm sure many, many families in America decorate Christmas trees and they probably, many of them put stars on the top of the tree. Uh, But I wonder how many of the people that put those stars on the tree even think about the fact that the star is there as a reminder of the star of Bethlehem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, it, it's interesting to me. Uh,
0: there are some people who
1: kind of assume that everything we're doing as Christians at Christmas is somehow something we hijacked from some horrible pagan mm-hmm. uh, something or other. And it's interesting that it, that really isn't the case. There are just yeah, some very ancient Christian traditions. Uh tied to this. Obviously, in all of this, we're not dealing with anything biblical. There's no scriptural mandate for us to do anything like decorate a Christmas tree or even celebrate Christmas to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. We're not instructed to do that. Um, but it's not forbidden either. I, I, I personally see no problem at all with celebrating Christmas. i you know, to pick a day and say, let's, let's remember that God came to us. Uh, in the flesh, um, and ponder the significance of that. I, I love the whole idea of Advent and, mm-hmm. uh, kind of encouraging the congregation to, to really focus on Christ, um, yeah, and the I think, significance of it, you
0: know? Yeah. You know, it's important for us to regularly remember the incarnation event. And I think Christmas, uh, you know, really was meant to be a time to, um, specifically focus on the fact that, hey, our Savior came into the world because God loved us while we were in our sin here in the world. And, you know, part of Christ's coming to the world was to sort of begin his work of reparation to the world, you know, repairing and putting things back in order uh, from things being broken at the fall in Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do, I do share
1: um, some concerns. I, 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 I'm, I'm troubled by Christians celebrating Christmas in a very secular manner. Uh, mm-hmm. I understand non-Christians doing it. I mean, they have no reason to to ponder the significance of the coming of Christ. Uh, you know, they're but to those of us who are in the faith. Uh, I feel like we have so much more to celebrate. Yeah. And, you know, I, kind of going back to the Santa Claus thing, one other thing that I, I try to warn parents about. Um, and part of it is, I think, in terms of raising children, I think faith is a uh, it's a difficult thing. Uh, faith for our for us our whole lives long and you can't live as a human being without exercising faith because we're finite mm-hmm. and dependent on forces outside of our control to even navigate life so uh, you're going to have to trust something we we can't live without doing that but faith in Christ uh is is such a a challenging journey you know I mean mm-hmm. it, it, he often doesn't do what we want him to do. Uh, he often behaves in ways towards us that we don't expect or anticipate. And uh, we can all bear witness to you know the fact that faith faith is a challenging journey. And I think of faith as a very precious thing. Uh, and as parents, I think we try to teach our children to put their faith in the right things, uh, things, that that will not fail them you know obviously we Mm -hmm. encourage our children to put their faith in Christ we can't make that choice for them but we can certainly encourage them to and model that for them and here's here's my issue with with the Santa Claus thing I don't know that a child can differentiate between faith in Santa Claus and faith in Jesus
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's very much you know you're putting your faith, you're addressing your correspondence to uh, very much the way we tell our children to pray to Jesus. You're writing your letter to Santa, who is somehow always been here and will always be here. Uh, He's not dead. He he somehow is this semi-divine being that has all this power and knowledge and is good and rewards uh, good things. And I'm very... Uh, very troubled by encouraging my child to exercise faith in something that I know is not true. Yeah. Um, you know, now I don't, I, I don't have any problem with parents kind of explain to children, well, this is a tradition and we're just kind of, it, we're, it's kind of a big make-believe or we're, it's kind of a, a game or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to actually encourage your children to literally believe, to put your faith in, only to someday, inevitably, no, they're going to find out you were lying to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that hurts the soul of a child. That, that, that's going to carry a, it's going to be a, a thing that, okay, and you also told me that I should believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, why should I assume that that's true, you know, uh, I, I think faith is is a fragile thing that, that should not be encouraged and things that we know are not true. Yeah, uh,
0: I think, uh, you know, like in our family, we do Santa Claus, and, um, uh, you know, we talk to our kids about, oh, yeah, you know, you know, Santa Claus will bring you something this year, right? But, um, but we never bend over backwards to keep up the facade. You know, we don't, um, you know, and, and what I find is that at least for our kids, most of them, by about the time they turn, you know, six or seven, they're, they're realizing, oh, this is something that, uh, you know, that mom and dad do. And for our older girls, and they say, well, why, you know, why did you do this? It was, you know, well, it's, it's fun for us to give you a gift that you don't tie directly to us, uh, but we still enjoy seeing you take joy in receiving something. And um, but we and we also talk about Santa as being sort of typological uh, for uh, for the Christian story, and so we say things like you know look, um, Santa is sort of made out to be this uh, this character who um, is sort of a type of Christ in the sense that he you know, looks out over you, he cares about you, all this kind of stuff, but we recognize that he's not Christ and he falls short. And, and you have to be honest and, and, and go through that kind of stuff with kids yeah. when the time is right. Um, another thing that I think is, um, you know going back to your point of Christians celebrating Christmas in a non-Christian manner, yeah. um, you see the bumper stickers, you know, keep Christ in Christmas. Well, I don't really feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't really feel like most people are trying to get Christ out of Christmas. uh, And and as far as, you know, non-Christians are trying to keep Christ out of it. I think it's like you said, it's just, well, they're not Christians, so they're not focusing on that aspect. Um, But as Christians, uh, that message may be more pertinent to us than it is to others, because we have a tendency to get so wrapped up in everything else the culture is doing that we sort of put the other stuff to the side. And, um, you know, we tell our kids, you know, Santa brings you gifts to remind you of the gift of Christ. And we tell our kids that uh, we give gifts to one another and we give gifts to others in our family uh, as a reminder that Christ is the ultimate gift. In fact, one of our traditions that we do every year is that we read the Christmas story from the Bible uh, before. uh, Well, actually, that's not always true. Sometimes we read it from another book, but only because we've chosen to have one of the kids read it and their reading skill is not quite up to par to you know, be handed an NASB uh-huh. or something. So, uh, but, but we read the Christmas story, and uh, we talk about the Christmas story before we do our gift exchanges. Yeah. And I think it's important uh, to help sort of refocus there. And, you know, when you're opening your gifts in light of the fact that you've just been reminded of Christ coming into the world, uh, it help, helps you be a little bit more grateful if you didn't get exactly that one thing you wanted, as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, there there are things that we try to do to keep Christ uh, as a central focus. Uh, right. I love right. I love Christian music. I love secular music. I love Christmas songs, and I think there are some great Christmas songs that are about relationships and family and fun yeah. and winter. Uh, and there are other Christmas songs that are about the Incarnation. and I think we need both. and I think we uh-huh. should, I think we should uh, you know sing both and and practice both. Uh, yeah. What are some trip Christmas traditions that you guys have that uh, maybe helps keep Christ central in your own uh, focus?
1: Yeah, I've, I guess my, my growing up was a little bit unique in that sense. You know, my parents were foreign missionaries in Spain um, Mm -hmm. and um, my dad never told us that Santa was a real thing. So we, we were never encouraged to think of him as the one who was giving gifts. In fact, what, what my parents did with us is as soon as we were old enough, um, we were included in the gift giving, so they would they would set aside a certain amount of money for gifts. They divide it evenly, and then we would draw names from a hat. And whatever name you got, you were buying gifts for that person in the family that year. Um, which led, you know, children sometimes are not the best at picking gifts. So it, maybe they weren't the best gifts uh, ever. <laughs> sometimes, you know, my poor sure. parents uh, got some really atrocious gifts over the years, but they really didn't care. It was. And, and what I think I really gleaned from that growing up is that the fun part of Christmas is giving gifts.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I don't, uh, and, and I've never really thought of Christmas as the time when I'm going to bring in this big hall. Um, <clears throat> I like to think of Christmas as a time where, you know, Christ gave himself to us and it's an opportunity to show the same type of, of attitude toward those around us, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And I've, um, And what you mentioned, my dad always did. And we've done it in our family uh, that before we open gifts, we read the Bible story. We read, you know, Matthew, the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke and the first chapter of John. And uh, we've always done that before. Something I've done, uh, I went in and uh, color coded all of the speaking parts in these texts so that i can hand out manuscripts to people and i'll read the narration and then when it's mary then somebody else reads mary's words and then i'll keep reading the narration it's the chief priest someone else reads those so that that's been a lot of fun too we, oh that's we, fun
0: yeah get people involved in the reading that way it's kind of like but the yeah. um... Oh, what do they call them? The, you know, the audio Bibles where it's more acted out, but it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's real, real life. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. that's been a
1: lot of fun. Uh, we, yeah. we really enjoy that. Uh, beyond that, you know, we have a secular thing. I don't know why I decided years ago that I like the movie Casablanca. And Christmas is when I forced my family to watch it with me. Uh, it has nothing to do with Christmas, but <laughs> it has become... A Christmas tradition for us.
0: Yeah. I'm going to get you a shirt that says Casablanca, (laughs) favorite Christmas film. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I uh, heard a pastor the other day say that when he was a youth minister after Christmas, he used to ask kids in his youth group, what did you get for Christmas? What did you get for Christmas? And over time, he felt like there was just something missing there. And so he ended up starting to ask the question to the youth after Christmas, what did you give your friends? What did you give your family? What yeah. did you give others for Christmas? Um, so I love that your parents had you guys uh, help pick things out yeah. for one another. Yeah. Um, we don't really have our girls help a lot with extended family stuff, uh, but we do allow our girls to get gifts for, for one another. Mm. And uh, I was really impressed this year. Our our girls had been riding bicycles and asked us if they could ride up to the convenience store up the road from our house and we said oh yeah sure well there's an aldi near that they ended up riding to the aldi and getting gifts for their little sisters uh, with their own money without even asking us you know Uh and and so i appreciate them feeling like oh this is a good opportunity for me to to share with this person and show them i care about them and uh, yeah. it, it is, I think, uh, you know, you, you hear the sort of the age old proverb, you're, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. there's really something to that. When you give someone something, you tend to feel good and they feel good, but you feel yeah. good that they feel good and you feel good that you're yeah. able to help in some way. Uh, yeah. so yeah, I, you know, as far as other tr- Christmas traditions we have, one of the things we like to do is go look at Christmas lights uh-huh. And, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, we do that too. You know, depending on the age of the kids, they love or hate it. <laughs> uh, why are we driving so slow? Let's go. <laughs> but yeah, um, but there's some great places to look and, uh, yeah. you know, around our community. And so we go drive around and, and see that. And, uh, it's always nice to see different people's takes on different things with Christmas lights. And, uh, yeah. it's, a uh, We don't go caroling. Uh, That's not something we've ever really been big on, Um, uh, but um, we do do typically try to make cookies uh, for people in the neighborhood. Now that COVID is Uh here, we've been buying uh, cookie mixes (laughs) and taking those, letting people make their own cookies so they don't have to worry about our germs. we like to do that kind of stuff. And, um, and again, it, it gives back to the idea of we let, you know, have our girls go walk down the street with us to give the neighbors, you know, their, their bag of stuff to bake. And uh, that way they get an idea of how this is a good opportunity for us to, you know, uh, share something with others in our community as well, not just our, our sisters or our, you know, parents or whoever. So. Yeah. Something we've, it, wasn't something
1: we did growing up. It's something we've started to do in my family over the past few years. A few years ago, I wrote uh, an advent devotional uh, that goes the first 25 days of December all the way up to Christmas. Um, and um, so we've been, we've, day by day leading up to Christmas, we have a little advent calendar. It's, it's got magnetic figures. Uh-huh. in the little boxes so you start composing a nativity scene day by day by adding oh, little figures so we'll we'll read the devotional and sing a, a Christmas song and and then put the little magnetic figure up on the advent calendar and that, that's been a lot of fun and again it makes it a lot more intentional kind of the whole mm-hmm. sense of thinking about Christ and when why it's such a tremendous thing that he came and how fortunate we are to live this side of that event. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to not have lived before it, where you were just looking forward and hope and not knowing exactly how God was going to do what he said he was going to do, you know? Um, so it's, it's, I feel like through the years, it's become uh, more meaningful to me, not
0: less. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's very encouraging. My guess is that after hearing this podcast, some people are going to email me and they're going to say, we Randall's Advent devotional series. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> well, I can, I can make that available <laughs> to you. I have it
1: in PDFs. It's, okay. I actually, last year, I rec- you know I do artwork. Uh, so last year I recorded, I have a playlist on YouTube, our church YouTube account, where I recorded videos where I read the, the devotional. And while I read it, uh, I'm doing a drawing that goes with it. Um, so um, I, I have those up on a YouTube playlist, but I also have the PDFs and the devotionals if anybody's interested. I'll make those available to
0: you, you can, yeah, if anybody uh, wants them. That would be awesome. I'm sure that people would love it. And uh, <laughs> so this is our, our last podcast of 2021. Uh, wow. So we'll, we'll begin again in January. And uh, I think we have a, a fun slate of topics for the new year. Uh, but um, it, it was good to be able to end, I think, this year's, this year's topics just on, uh, we did three podcasts here on Christmas, and it, it's been good to end on that note and end on focus on incarnation and focus on making yeah. Christ Lord. I read a really interesting Catholic theology book a couple of years ago, and it was about new landscapes in Catholic theology. What are the most important things And by and large, the biggest theme in the entire book was the lordship of Christ. And um, I felt like that was just, um, uh, I think that's an important thing, not only for Catholics. I think it's an important thing for Christians in general. It's a big issue in in theology in general. And uh, focusing on the incarnation, focusing on Christ at Christmas is a reminder uh, that while he came as a baby, he came. Uh, not to remain a baby and remain a child, but he came uh, because he is our Lord, and he was coming to provide a way for salvation, and he was coming to make right all the things that had been wrong uh, from uh, essentially Adam and Eve eating the fruit in the garden to uh, to today. Yeah. And so, uh, if you uh, are listening to this and you're thinking about, you know, some new Christmas traditions you might want to start, uh, you might want to go look at Christmas lights. You might want to begin reading yeah. the Christmas story before you open gifts. You might want to remind your children that the star on top of the tree is to remind us of the star of Bethlehem. Uh, you might want to remind our kids that we are lucky to not have to put actual candles on our trees anymore. <laughs> and burn our houses down. Um, But in whatever Christmas traditions you already have or whatever new ones you choose to adopt, um, think about how whatever that tradition is, it can be connected to the birth of Christ and the coming of our Lord. And think about how in all things that you do for Christmas that you can point people's attention to the Savior, not because you're down on all the secular stuff, but simply because um, Christ's coming is the reason that we celebrate all this stuff to begin with as Christians. And when we stay grounded in Christ, we don't get so wrapped up in the consumerism and in the commercialism. Um, it's fun to give gifts, but, um, you know, we have to, we have to also be reasonable about how much we spend. It's fun to, you um, uh, you know, it's fun to decorate, but again, we have to be reasonable at how much we do and how much we go overboard or not overboard and how much we want to be like the Griswolds with how many lights are on our house or, you know, whatever else. And so, um, you know, you see, whatever you do for Christmas, we want to encourage you to, to keep Christ um, on the horizon, keep Christ as a central focus and uh, do whatever you can to point others to Christ and his incarnation as you embrace any other, uh, any other traditions. So uh, yeah, well, thank you guys as always for listening to the podcast and we'll see you again next time after the holidays on Faith and Culture Now podcast.